Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, as the blockades continue, train service across the country is further disrupted. On the challenges to our rail system, you know, we're very concerned. We want this to get resolved quickly. People, of course, have the right to protest in Canada, but we want to get to a resolution quickly. John Baird decides not to run for the federal conservative leadership. The race is not as interesting as it would have been if Mr. Baird was in it, but also that the list of people not running is getting to be far more interesting than the list of people who actually are running. And the Prime Minister arrives in Germany for the Munich Security Conference. Among the issues that Prime Minister Trudeau will be highlighting in his meetings are the Iranian shooting down of Flight 752 and the progress or lack thereof in the investigation of the incident. It's Friday, February 14th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the follow-up podcast, Althea Raj. Good morning, Althea. Good morning, Mark. So this blockade has become obviously a very big story, a very big theme in Canadian politics. Uh, Via Rail yesterday announced that uh, all of its uh, rail service across the country, uh, a passenger rail service was being shut down as a result of this. There are other services being shut down as well. And the question becomes, uh, what does the government do about this? Well, I would say the government has kind of been asleep at the switch on this issue that's been basically percolating on Thursday, it's news emerged that Carolyn Bennett, who's the Minister of Crown and Indigenous uh, Relations, um, is going to be meeting along with um, the BC government, uh, the Wet'suwet'en. Um, that conversation uh, led to the rail service in BC um, resuming. The rail service in eastern Canada is not resuming um, because the OPP is not enforcing an injunction that the courts issued over the weekend, I believe. So it's it's been there for a couple of days. Um, Basically, in Ontario, what we're seeing is the provincial government pointing the finger to the federal government and the federal government pointing the finger to the provincial government and the OPP saying, hey, this is this. We're just here to maintain the peace, and uh, we are following the recommendation of the Ipperwash Inquiry. Of course, that happened in the 1990s when the uh, police uh, killed an Indigenous protester. And so they're kind of taking a more uh, step-back approach and saying it's up to the politicians and the protesters to um, sort this amongst themselves. So that's the reason why uh, there's the CN closure, which may actually lead to job losses, um, as well as the via rail interruption, which is going to lead to tens of thousands of commuter, commuters who are being disrupted. Um, what are the, the government's minister- options ultimately, yeah. though? Because this is this is obviously a difficult situation, and and in practice in Canada, the, the when there have been blockades, the the government and the authorities have tried to resolve them peacefully rather than going in and removing people and arresting them and so on, right? Well, we've seen a little bit of both. Um, I, you know, I think part of the reason that the conflict escalated was because of RCMP action in British Columbia. Um, what we, I think the federal government was basically trying to just take a wait and see approach and see if this would last, um, as long as it has before, uh, basically reaching out and offering an olive branch as in, uh, let's meet and, uh, please end this blockade, um, in order for that meeting to happen. At the end of the day, I think though, that, the main, I mean, what we're seeing are protest and solidarity. 
with what's happening in British Columbia, which the federal government says is a provincial issue and should be dealt with in a provincial manner. But at the heart of it, it's really about um, a, a claim to land and who speaks for those who live on the land and the relationship with the crown, which is really the, the province and the federal government in this case. And I think what we're learning is that if we don't um, address issues, they will continue to percolate. And I think that's what we're seeing at the moment. What does it foretell in terms of the battle over pipelines and resource development? Uh, the government had hoped to uh, had hoped to strike a compromise on that and and be able to move forward uh, as kind of with a kind of Goldilocks uh, solution of sorts. Uh, does this mean that, uh, that that's not going to be possible? I think these are very different issues. What is happening in British Columbia with the wet sweatin is very different than uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, for example. Um, so in this case, you're talking about a pipeline that is entirely in provincial jurisdiction, you know, starts in British Columbia, ends in British Columbia. And in this case, the issue seems to be complicated by the fact that the nation itself doesn't seem to agree on who speaks for them. The nation is very divided. I, I would talk about it more like a family feud. Um, and so while there is the case about people asserting their right on territory that um, hasn't, you know, is not covered under a treaty, for example, um, and the hereditary chief's argument that the band councils who support the project only speak on behalf of the council and represent only the territory that is defined, uh, that is specifically defined, the federal government's uh, view is very different on the matter. Um, but I think both sides would agree that the claim to title has not been adequately addressed. That is very different than with Trans Mountain, where um, Indigenous groups came to the table and their concerns were heard and they were consulted. But at the end of the day, the cabinet and the courts uh, supported this, um, decided that uh, they were going to take mitigating factors for what the Indigenous communities had raised and that um, they had decided that there were other societal goals that basically trumped the Indigenous community's concerns. So you're talking about a process where people were were not consulted because they chose not to participate in the process, that's what we're talking about now, versus a process where the government decided, uh, we hear you, we're going to take some actions, but at the end of the day, um, you are not going to get what you want. Right. All right, let's turn to the Conservative <laughs> leadership race. And it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, it's it, it's a very complicated issue, obviously, and that's that's why it's worth exploring, uh, as well as the fact that it's in the news. But uh, in the conservative leadership race, uh, we will not see John Baird. I think a lot of people who were close to conservative politics would have been surprised to see him go ahead and run, even though he clearly yeah. was considering it recently. Uh, so I don't think it's a big surprise that he's not running. But what does that mean for the race? Well, it means that the race of who the race is not as interesting as it would have been if Mr. Baird was in it, certainly. But also that the list of people not running is getting to be far more interesting than the list of people who actually are running. Yeah. Um, basically, and I, I don't want to say, like, write com people completely off, but um, it is Peter McKay's race to lose. Um, Aaron O'Toole, who served in cabinet, um, 
under Stephen Harper is going to try to present himself as that movement conservative person, like the person that John Baird would have, uh, the side of the party that John Baird would have run for to represent, or Rana Ambrose, or Pierre Poiliev. Mr. O'Toole is going to try to claim that territory. Marilyn Gladue is a very um, interesting and feisty uh, woman who hasn't been defined yet. You know, she was a new MP in 2015. So uh, she has a chance to kind of raise her profile. Another woman, Leslyn Lewis from Toronto, um, a black woman who uh, I think is going to represent more the pro-life side of the party. Um, she is actually uh, an approved candidate. So she and Aaron O'Toole are kind of in the same bucket, whereas Peter McKay has forked over all the money, so he has the membership lists. Um, at the moment, I think those are the four main uh, contenders. We also saw this week that John Williamson had decided to bow out of the contest. Um, so uh, it's, we'll see. There's, yeah. still, there's still two weeks for I mean, somebody. It's, yeah, it's fair uh, to say to it's a lot less interesting. candidate. But it's, a, it's a, yeah, I mean, yeah. they wanted the rules to be less, to be more restrictive. Right. And they have succeeded yeah. in having a race that is more restrictive. No question. All right. Finally, uh, the prime minister has uh, wrapped up his trip to Africa and is uh, in Munich in Germany for a security conference uh, as his travels continue. Tell us about that. Yeah, on his way home to Ottawa. Um, he is scheduled to leave again uh, on Monday to go to Barbados uh, for a meeting of the Caribbean nations, CARICOM. So another potential 20 votes up for grabs for Canada's uh, UN bid. Um, but so far, uh, it looks from the local media reports that the Prime Minister's trip in Africa has been quite successful. Um, the Prime Minister has been uh, forthcoming in that he is there partly uh, to secure support for Canada's UN Security Council bill. And so far, one member, Senegal, has publicly declared that, yes, they will support Canada's bid. Now, Mark, we don't really know if they're going to vote for us because right. it is a secret ballot. Yeah. <laughs> but point. they said so publicly. Um, and there's 54 votes in Africa. Africa, uh, Latin America, the Caribbean are absolutely blocks of countries that we do need to secure because usually um, European nations vote for other European nations. Right. And uh, we are in a tough battle with Ireland and Norway, who both had already announced their candidacy years before we got into the contest. Ireland actually declared in 2005 uh, that they were competing for this Security Council seat. And so they had already, you know, years of securing uh, securing votes from sure. other member states. You know, I'll vote for you on this, you vote for me on that. So we have a lot of catching up to do. And of course, the Prime Minister missed the main kind of uh, hobnobbing diplomatic circuit um, event in September because we had a federal election. And so he missed the opening of the United Nations General Assembly. So he's busy using every break week to his utmost uh, advantage to try to secure as much support as he can. All right. Althea, thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Mark. You too. That's Althea Raj, HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the follow-up podcast. On the challenges to our rail system, you know, we're very concerned. We want this to get resolved quickly. People, of course, have the right to protest in Canada, but we want to get to a resolution quickly. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues, in the end, the courts must prevail over protests. The Star writes... 
A federal court decision last week said that while First Nations have a right to be consulted on resource projects, the law does not give them a veto. Nor do they have a right to manipulate the consultation process in such a way that it becomes simply a tool to kill a project. In the end, after the consulting and the protesting are done, those who turn to the courts for support must accept both their victories and setbacks along the way. At globalnews.ca, Scott Thompson asks why the focus is only on Indigenous communities that don't support pipelines. Thompson writes, Some media and environmentalists have painted a picture of Canada taking advantage of Indigenous people when many of those communities are on board with the coastal gas link development and will profit from it, including with jobs. It's time we heard from Indigenous communities who have approved and will profit from such projects and stop the costly grandstanding by a few at the country's expense. At ctvnews.ca, Don Martin argues Justin Trudeau should stay away from this perfect storm of Indigenous energy conflict. Martin writes, The Prime Minister's signature policy priority is in flames. The Wet'suwet'en protest shows there is really no obvious end to continued confrontation as time runs out on public patience. So unless he wants to do one of his white knight charges onto the battlefield, armed with good intentions that aren't nearly good enough, Justin Trudeau might as well stay an ocean away, safely delivering mush into the microphones. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister, as we mentioned, has wrapped up his week-long visit to Africa and is now in Germany for the Munich Security Conference. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on the event and what to expect. Mark, the three-day Munich Security Conference, which starts today, has become one of the most noteworthy gatherings for world leaders these days. Prime Minister Trudeau is taking part in a high-level discussion session and a number of bilateral meetings. He'll also be speaking with reporters later in the day. He and Foreign Affairs Minister François-Philippe Champagne have indicated they're hoping to meet with the foreign affairs ministers from China and Iran. Forty heads of state are expected to take part and 60 foreign ministers. Among the others attending will be U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Democratic House Leader Nancy Pelosi, French President Emmanuel Macron, and Facebook head Mark Zuckerberg. Among the issues on the agenda are something the conference organizers are calling Westlessness, and that's the decline in world leadership of Western democracies, also the rise of China, the situation in the Middle East, and the coronavirus. Among the issues that Prime Minister Trudeau will be highlighting in his meetings are the Iranian shooting down of Flight 752 and the progress, or lack thereof, in the investigation of the incident, with the Iranians still refusing to send the flight recorder to France for analysis. Also, the Canadian delegation will also continue to raise the issue of China's unlawful detention of Canadians Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig. So Mark, lots to watch for in Munich today. Thanks, Martin. Also today, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer will hold a news conference in Ottawa to address the ongoing blockades across the country. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will be in Charlottetown, where she will meet with the Premier of Prince Edward Island and the Mayor of Charlottetown. Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault will take part in an interactive discussion with students from École Secondaire Louis-Joseph Papineau in Papineauville, Quebec. Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines will visit the 2020 Canadian International Auto Show in Toronto. In London, Ontario, Labour Minister Philomena Tassi and Economic Development Minister Melanie Jolie will tour the Carpenters Union local 1946 facility. And Minister of Seniors Deb Schulte will make an announcement in Waterloo, Ontario. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, February the 14th. Tune in to Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.